why should you know how to ground yourself in your physical body and have regard for a vehicle that is actually a yantra, this powerful energy vortex that we walk around in every day and give little care for? Nobody taught you. How are we supposed to know unless someone teaches us? Right? And our relationships with our body tend to be command relationships. We're little dictators. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Faster, faster, harder, go. And the body screams out in pain. I don't want to. But we don't listen. Hello there, and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. This is your host, John Price. I don't know about you guys, but we pulled into the new year like Tomater in cars, just clunking and <laughs> making all kinds of sounds. Uh, I'm really excited to be here today. This is the first podcast of the new year, and it is with a friend and somebody who's blowing my mind and making me think about all the stuff that I don't think about all that much. Today's conversation is about the body. And as you'll hear, I'm <laughs> I'm kind of blown away by how little we listen, but certainly I listen to the body. I hope when you listen today, you reflect on, at least I reflect on consciousness. I saw a TED Talk a while ago with Anil Seth. I highly recommend it. Go check it out. He's talking about consciousnesses and all the different kind of consciousnesses or awarenesses that exist in our experience, our subjective experience. And that actually, that that's probably not the right way to say it because it's not really subjective because we're not necessarily aware of it. It's not included in our subjectivity. But regardless, the, the fascinating thing about kind of where we're moving is this kind of polytheistic multiplicity approach where we can start to conceptualize our kind of known and unknown experience that is both conscious and unconscious as as a, a pantheon as a as a multiplicity I, I know that many people who are researching consciousness would not like the fact that i just said pantheon but it makes a hell of a lot of sense to me there are all these different autonomous forces that exist in our known and unknown experience and the body's one of them our somatic experience our perceptual experience from you know in, that it, it is included in what we did, we would understand to be the body so I'm, I'm <laughs> kind of blown away by how, uh, how exciting this conversation was. And it really speaks to the need to, to get into your uncomfortable places and, uh, and see what speaks, and even if that's pain. <laughs> so before we get started, and I'll be brief today, I want to wish Jeremiah a happy birthday um, Jeremiah, happy birthday on this wonderful day, and uh, yeah, happy birthday, man. 
Uh, Debbie, thank you for joining me during this conversation. I'm going to let you know a little bit about her, and then I'll just hit a couple of updates. So I want to read her bio. This is what Debbie says. Teaching yoga is a passion for me, and I love being able to aid my students in bringing more awareness to every aspect of their lives. I began my private practice in body work and energetics in 1993 and started my yoga therapy practice in 1995. I later founded the Lotus Center for Yoga and Healing Arts in 1998 to work privately with students on asana, chittis, and pranayama, sensory withdrawal, chanting, and meditation. There is very little that I can say regarding my teaching ability that does not directly reflect upon my teachers and their teachers before them. It has been through grace and their guidance that I'm able to share my experience. So this is a lineage. You know, Debbie is a part of a lineage. She quotes Kumar Palana, Dr. Robert Savoda, Again, sorry for the pronunciation here. Sri Srivasana Ramiswami and Swami Sudaranda. Through them I have learned by study as well as transmission, yoga philosophy, the yoga sutras, sumkhya philosophy, Ayurvedic principles, meditation, chanting, and Sanskrit. And it it it's interesting, you know, I, I spend a lot of time as as you'll hear, I spend a lot of time talking to people who have really spent lots of their time in the intellectual world of scholarship. And what I love about Debbie is that she's, she's more of a dancer. She's more of kind of being, she, she spends all of her time being embodied and helping others be more embodied. So I was eager and excited to chat with her. I'm so glad we did. Debbie, thank you. Um, check her out at yogaanddharma.com, www.yogaandharma.com. And she's got her email address and contact info on there, and check her out. Uh, for this podcast, go to thesacredspeaks.com, and go to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, search The Sacred Speaks. Uh, today's music is provided by Modern Nations. I've got somebody wonderful lined up to uh, to do the music today, and then I had a complete breakdown in my uh, in my music uploading and purchasing software. So I uh, kind of went with what is familiar. So today is Modern Nations. The song is Clouds, and for those of you listening to the podcast, know that uh, that song's been dear to my heart. It's been the theme music through the entire process, and it will continue to be the theme music. <laughs> so today we're going to hear a little more. At the end of the episode, you can hear the full song. And that's the case for every episode. I tend to use musicians that uh, I want to showcase. I'll play a little snippet of something from their music, and then at the end of each episode, play a full selection or a full song. And that's been great from my perspective because I've been listening to a ton of music. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a therapy, acupuncture, wellness practice in Houston. Check it out at the Center for Haas. T H E C E N T E R. F-O-R-H-A-S dot com, the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. This is our practice my wife and I started years ago, and <laughs> it is uh, it is the reason why I'm able to do this podcast. So uh, check it out, and check out what we offer as well. We've got a number of wonderful clinicians there that help with therapy, acupuncture, food therapy, wellness, group therapy, all kinds of great stuff. Uh, nothing else today, other than it's really good to start this year off with an episode here in January. I've got a great lineup in the next few months, including 
uh, well, I don't know if I want to say this. It's not quite confirmed. Okay, I'm going to say it anyway. Jill Bolte-Taylor um, is a, a woman who wrote The Stroke of Insight. And I saw that TED Talk years ago. I've reached out and we're arranging a time to speak. And I am stoked. Um, there's an, a couple other folks. Mark Winborn is a Jungian analyst. And I am currently reading Dr. Eric um, Goodwin, who has written a number of books on dreams and interpretation of dreams. He's a psychiatrist and grounds dreams in a more biological and evolutionary, um, in a more biological or evolutionary lens. And I'm so um, thankful. I, I, we were going to talk last week, but we didn't. So I was able to start reading his second book. And uh, as things work out, they did. Uh, and I've gotten more information and I will be talking to him next week, and that'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks. We've got a Fort Worth artist, um, rapper, who's going to be on the podcast, uh, Rex. He's a fantastic fella, and I'm eager to chat with him and learn more about his his lyrics and words and how he, um, he's, he's been walking a spiritual path through his music. Okay, so more good stuff to come. Thanks for being here, and as always, thanks for supporting the podcast by listening and sharing and liking and letting more people know about it. So thanks. Really grateful. We'll leave it there. This is exciting for me because you and I have obviously connected in a number of ways, um, we also approach healing and suffering in similar ways, but also in plenty of different ways. And so in our kind of preparatory conversations, which were almost non-existent, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> um, we talked about that and kind of noted, you know, my curiosity to, to hear from you, how you approach the folks with whom you work, and of course, learn more about your history and what has brought you into doing what it is you do. And I know you got a list there of things we can talk about. The thing that I would, um, my first thought, of course, is that kind of really broad question about, you know, what it is that you do and what brought you to do what you do. That would be my idea about where we start. Okay. Do you have any ideas about where we start? Well, um, I've been trying to think about what it is that I do, trying to give it a, a, a name because it really doesn't have one. And what I came up with last week or so was psycho-emotional energetic integration and using the body as the touchstone for all of that and that the body is the manifestation of the subtle body. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's the, this podcast, um, has been really looking at a lot of intellectual, academic, religious, spiritual, um, scientific aspects of how human beings have really tried to understand mysteries of living. And, you know, the work that you do hasn't been as represented in this tapestry. Okay. So, um, psycho emotional 
Energetic integration. Energetic integration. And I don't know that that necessarily fits it, but when it popped in when I was in the shower, I thought, yeah, that's that's close. I do a shit ton of thinking in the shower. Shower is like a magical place, isn't it? It is for me. <laughs> that water, I mean, I, I got to a point where I was doing these interesting prayers. Hmm really wild you know something about the baptism of the water and that just moment where you're in this alchemical place and being cleansed and washed and it wasn't anything other than a reflection on uh on that process i think but that is, i mean i i imagine if i'm struggling with a title for something oddly enough it tends to come to me in the shower or the bathroom washing my face or something for, or for me, taking a bath, yeah, which is where I clean the day off when I can, as well as reflect. But the water's a nice container. Oh, God, yeah. That's something that um, we I, I talk a lot about in dream in dreams, you know, that when the, the various areas of the house you know, show and reflect certain alchemical um, processes okay you know there's a different alchemical association to the attic and the garage than there is to the bathroom or the kitchen yeah so paying attention to how we um, hold those spaces and you know when when somebody says i'm in the attic in a dream it's pretty easy to begin to unpack what might what the dream might be suggesting you know what is the attic it's the stuff where, you know, we don't know what to do with all this shit. So we put it in the attic or, you know, all the stuff nobody can see, all of our memories, all of our, you know, all, again, all the stuff we don't know what to do in our home. So it goes there. And uh, so here we are, you know. Unaddressed mental boxes. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. God, isn't that the truth? So so here you get this great title in the the the, the, the baptismal waters psycho-emotional energetic integration yeah i don't know i mean i i use the body obviously i've been doing manual and movement therapy for almost 30 years mm -hmm. but the energy that i work with in people manifests in the physical body so mm. you know everything that we think everything that we feel stores itself in our tissue there's no getting around it everything that we identify with as i holds on and they talk about that in the in the yogic context right so we have all of these impressions that if we want to believe in something like reincarnation propels the subtle body forward and forward and forward with all of the imprints or impressions along with that so when working with an individual who's holding, and we all do for different reasons, I first look at where the energy is flowing and where it's not and why. So that's psycho-emotional, energetic mm -hmm. integration. Integration into what? Into the suchness that we've manifested as. Debbie, okay. John, I don't know. Now let's let's tend to that a bit. Okay. Because And would you just introduce yourself to the listener and to myself. I mean, I'm eager to get to know you in a new way. 
and uh, we haven't spent a ton of time together. So now I put a mic in your face and I'm going to ask you questions. Thank are... you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Take me to lunch and stick a mic in my and face. Stick a mic in your face. <laughs> Fantastic. And we're recording. Um, <laughs> my name is Debbie Mills and... I'm a healer. I help people to heal. I use massage, yoga, yoga therapy, uh, energy healing, uh, lifestyle consultation, dream interpretation, just holding space for people so that they can feel safe enough to go deeper into the depths of their despair, really. I just love humanity and I want to help people heal. Yeah, that comes from somewhere, right? That desire to, a young call it the wounded healer, you know? Oh, yeah. What is it that did that for you? Like, to, I want to know more yeah. about your history. I had a lot of trauma as a kid and I saw things that maybe people will say were make believe, but things that people didn't see. I heard things that people didn't hear. I was tapped into an entire world that was extremely real for me that nobody seemed to notice. And it scared the shit out of me, right? So I had to create little energy vortexes so that I could go to bed at night because I was petrified. I did not feel safe in my own skin. I had a speech impediment. I walked into walls. I knocked things over. I had very little spatial cognition. I didn't have good spatial relationship. It took me forever to learn how to tie my shoes. Couldn't do a cartwheel. Couldn't blow a bubble. I was so scared. And is, is, is that from the trauma? Is it? I would say, yeah. Yeah. I would absolutely say that um, the inability to focus and the needs improvement and conduct and all of that was from, from trauma. Um, good intellect, ability to excel in school was there, but not... Um, I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't tow the line. The line didn't make sense to me. And the dynamic that I saw around me was just hurtful. And I didn't really want to be a part of the world that I saw. So I defined things for myself and kept moving forward to try to create the life that I wanted, but wasn't the life that I was born into. Well, that's a, I'm going to sit with that for a second. So, I, I think it's important to tend to some of the, you know, using a term like energy sets us up into a pretty un uncontainable, um, undefinable uh, understanding of something. You know, sometimes, sometimes I, I notice that that kind of language, it's hard to get your head around. It, it is and it isn't, you know, like people go to acupuncturists, chi, right? They go and work with Alejandro at MD Anderson when he was still there, mm -hmm. and it was Lung. People go to a yoga class or a meditation course, and they're focusing on prana. It's, it, it's been called many different things, but there is an energy that f I believe flows through everything and everyone. And we can access it with the breath. We can 
focus our mind and get transported into different realms. We can go on a journey without ever taking a step just by closing our eyes and going in inside. You know, and we've forgotten how to feel and how to listen to our own internal guides. We keep looking outside for someone to tell us what to do, how to be, where to go. And it's, it's fraught with disappointment because we're only really going to be met when we meet ourselves. So I had to meet myself. I had to go in and, and face things that I, that, petrif that I was terrified to see. And it's the work that I try to help people do now. Can you say more about that? So growing up, I, it was hard for me to stop talking, to be still, to, to be with myself. I needed to constantly distract myself. I couldn't step on cracks. There were certain superstitions that I had that would destroy me if, if they occurred, which of course is not true, but that's the fear and the anxiety that happens with trauma. So learning to be still, learning to go into the dark corners of, of the mind and to know that the things that we perceive are going to take us out are really the things that are going to set us free. We get trapped by what we think we should be doing, what we think we should be thinking, where we should be going. You know, it's that this thing that I was wanting to talk to you about, this concept of should. It takes us away from our center. It, it encourages counter will, right? So when we think we should be doing something, that's a thought. It's not a feeling. It's something that's coming from the outside that's negating our experience in this world. And so what do we do when we're told to do something? We either obey and resent it, right? Or we do the opposite because we're not going to be told what to do. And I am a prime example of that for sure. I am a rooster in, in every sense of the word. <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> implemented counter will to the nth degree uh, growing up and it's brought me to where I am right now. What is that, what is that word you're using? Counter what? Counter will. Counter will. Got it. What did you think I was saying? Counter will. Oh, well, well, <laughs> that, too. That, that would be another water. <laughs> Counter will. Counter will. Yeah. That's a, it's just a new term for me. And I, I've. In psychology? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, there's plenty I don't know. You know, there's. And I, I just get curious around new, these new concepts. You know, I, I would consider that to be kind of a trickster. I'm glad you brought the rooster in there. You know, that, that trickster part of us that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, in that. Yeah, my dad nicknamed me after Rooster Cogburn when I was three. <laughs> well, it's, um, so as you're as you were talking, I had this thought about you've you've had a lot of travel. You've you've been a lot of places. Oh yeah, because you you grew up in Hawaii, is that right? I grew up in California. California, but I also grew up part of the time in uh, Bolivia before my parents were divorced, and I moved to Hawaii 
when I was 17 on my own. I moved out when I was 15. And I've traveled all over. You moved to Hawaii on your own when you were 15? 17. 17. I moved out of the house when I was, well, 13 the first time, but 15 for real. Got it. What was that like? Scary. But I knew that my way was going to help me to survive and to stay was going to mean an uncertain death. Mm. Yeah, literal, psychological? Emotional. Mm. Emotional. I knew what I needed to do, and I knew that the people that were meant to be taking care of me didn't have the capacity to nurture me in the way that I needed to be nurtured. And it doesn't mean that they were bad people. They just were very conflicted themselves. Mm -hmm. And I had a very different vision uh, for my life. And I am unlike anyone in my family. You're the rooster. I think, yes. So, so tell me about some of these images or visions that you started to encounter when you were young. So what I would classify as disembodied spirits and voices, constantly voices in my head telling me where to go, where to be, and not in the should sense, which I wouldn't have listened to, but guides. I have so many voices that have guided me that I'm so grateful for. Told me to leave, told me to stay, told me to be patient told me not to listen. Um, but you know, when you're a kid and you're walking down the hall and you see like heads that don't really mean anything, but that are just gory, you know, something's not right. Something in your psyche isn't okay. Right? So there are these heads without bodies. Thinking, thinking, thinking. And for me, it meant no, you've got to get in your body. You have to make your physical being safe. And I don't think that's a coincidence that what I do is help people to get in their bodies. People are so afraid to actually feel and be in their bodies. They keep running. They numb themselves. They distract themselves. They don't want to be seen, yet they yearn to be seen. Mm -hmm. So I had heads, gory heads, without bodies. So my take on that is that you weren't trying to make sense of it. You were building, you said, vortexes to protect you. Yeah, so at night, because I couldn't sleep, and granted lots of bad things would happen at night, um, I would... What I learned later were like yantras, so geometric diagrams in the room to create enough of a field to where I felt like I could let my guard down and go to sleep. And now I see energy in people. I, I create yantras in my asana practice. I move energy in people because I can see where the line is not connecting if you can call it a line, line being a spiral or what have you, the energy moves. And so maybe someone's going through something and they're like, oh, my shoulder hurts, you know, and everyone's instinct is make it go away. 
make it go away. Give me a pill, cut it out. It's bad. And my thought is, well, what's going on in your body? Have you inquired? Do you have a relationship with your body? Have you courted your body? No. Why? I don't want to feel. Okay. It's interesting. I mean, it, it, I want to know more about that because my, my thought was that I don't know how. That's why I have a job. But, <laughs> but it's not, it's, it's not even the, it's not even the thought of, I don't know how it's what the hell are you talking about? You know, it, it's like, I don't even know how, I don't have a framework for that. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat talking about myself, but also about others. You know, I've, I've recently started doing this, um, kind of new, new form of yoga. It's called, uh, vocal lessons. <laughs> I'm singing and it's getting me in touch with myself in ways that I'd not, my, my coach, Ken will, will say, do that again. And I'll go to what, you know, I have no idea. So I, I, I really relate with this moment of like, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a recipient of this thing we're talking about. You know, I'm, I'm dipped in this cultural sauce where, I mean, Ken Robinson has a talk on Ted, um, where he talks about how, look, we want to teach mathematics and English, but we don't make dance necessary. You know, we all have a body. Why not learn how to be in your body? And aside from sports or, and I've had long, long bouts of meditation practice and yoga, but here I am midlife, very well aware of the ways that I'm not connected with my body in that way. So I really, I really relate with this moment for people where th there's not even a, oh, I'm not doing that thing. There's just a blankness even to that thing. And so now I'm just empathizing with folks that kind of probably feel foolish for not being able to identify what actually is happening. I, and I understand what you're saying because people have said that to me, like, I should know this. And I say, why should you? There's that word again, should. Why should you know how to ground yourself in your physical body and have regard for a vehicle that is actually a yantra, this powerful energy vortex that we walk around in every day and give little care for? Nobody taught you. How are we supposed to know unless someone teaches us? Right. And our relationships with our body tend to be command relationships. We're little dictators. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Faster, faster, harder, go. And the body screams out in pain. I don't want to, but we don't listen mm. because it's inconvenient. Mm. We don't have time. Life's moving too fast. We're obligated. It doesn't matter. Right. So, Teaching people to have a relationship with their body is just that, right? You want to get to know someone, what do you do? A, first, you're not an asshole, right? Yeah. You engage. <laughs> Hi, how are you? My yeah. name's so-and-so. I've noticed this about you. We're courteous. We're, we, we inquire. We're thoughtful. It's no different. The body is its own entity. It has its own psychology. It requires time. So different in the way that I think yoga is practiced um, here and in India. I've spent so much time in India. Um, 
commanding the body to do things. Yes, we can move energy that way, but that doesn't mean we're going to have a good relationship. Right? So if we utilize the body and we're curious, oh, what? Oh, but I said I was going to do a sun salutation and I can't bend over, but I'm going to bend over because I said I was going to do a sun salutation. What does that mean? That means we're being a dictator. We're not careful. We're not thoughtful. We're attached. Yoga is about detachment. <laughs> right? Yet we're using our body being very much attached to what we think we're supposed to look like. So if we spend time feeling what's actually there and allowing the body to reveal to the mind what it actually requires, it's profound. It's beautiful. I've seen people just fall apart in a good way because they stopped long enough to listen and to hear and to feel what's going on in their bodies that the mind didn't have time to listen to. And then the energy starts to move and people start to shake and their pains start to go away. And whether that's in a yoga practice or I am massaging someone or I'm moving someone, getting them in touch with what's actually going on in their physical body, using the breath, feeling the energy flow and not flow, encouraging someone to be open so that they're not so frustrated when the energy's not flowing because that's what happens, right? We get really frustrated when it doesn't go the way we think it should go. Well, this is, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll just, I'll kind of implicate myself here. I mean, I feel a sense of, <laughs> to be honest, I'm a bit intimidated and, uh, and somewhat anxious. I mean, I've been living in a very intellectual place for over a decade. You know, all of, all of these pursuits, not, not, you know, I work with people, right. And we, we connect and we relate, you know, but when it, and I'll certainly ask questions about the body and you know what what is that telling you you know those kinds of but you're you're actually getting in with people and working with their body so my my feeling here is I, I just coming into contact with something that I just I realize I don't come into contact with as much I relate a lot with the people that you're working with and uh, in that I don't I don't ask myself these questions about what that pain is I mean I'm 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 immediately already feeling like wow this is inspiring to to just uh, to to envision and imagine my body in a different way. So I have a a couple of thoughts here. The the first is that list that you got in your hand to try to figure out kind of what what you're bringing in with you. I think I already addressed quite a bit of my little bullet points. Good. So. I don't want to get too much in like a how-to thing. I think we should get there. But I, I really want to learn more about your... Um, how you understand... Um, how you understand the body when you work with people. You're, 
your evolution through your travels may be a way to get in there. I kind of, I kind of want to know more about how you've accumulated this practice that you now share with others. Um, well, for about the last 30 years almost, I've been delving into manual and movement therapies. I believe that fascia is a conductor for chi or prana. Um, soft tissue is affected by what our fascia is doing. I believe that our structural form affects how we feel, which affects how we think. So studying massage therapy, uh, studying yoga, uh, getting more into the texts of yoga and understanding the nature of mind in that way and that I was classically trained in Raja Yoga and Sankhya and I've studied Tantra with a teacher and, and texts and understanding that's the concept of separation and unity at the same time. I can't really say how I learned to do what I do because nobody taught me to do what I do. I've just allowed myself the freedom to be drawn to different people at different times in my life, to absorb whatever it is that they were offering to the fullest of my ability, and then to allow myself to let go of what didn't fit, but first to absorb what they were teaching because I needed to understand. I wanted to understand. So I've studied with great teachers. I've sat in dark rooms, inner sanctums of a Himalayan hut where a great master lived and died. I, I don't know if I can answer how I learned, um, but I love to travel. I love to expose myself to different cultures, different ways of being. I like to see where I bow up against something and why and then to learn how to let that go. So yoga has been a great influence in my life. Um, I've had different teachers along the way. Srivatsa Ramaswamy, Robert Svoboda, uh, Swami Sundaranand. I've been following around Gabor Mate for a year and a half now because I just think he's the cat's meow. Um, he's, he's awesome. <sighs> my travels. I think what brought me to yoga in India was a connection that I had with National Geographic as a kid. I used to go down to the, the lake when I was a kid and I would do these little rituals and I didn't know why, but I would worship the elements and do little diagrams in the, in the dirt that I later saw in Ayurvedic and yogic books that were diagrams of the elements. I didn't know that as a kid. I was just doing what I was told to do in my head. And so some people could say I was crazy. And at times I thought I was, right? But I just did it. So yoga seemed the most natural way to start going. And I was always interested in 
Eastern philosophy and the subtle realms, the subtle body, subtle energy, because that's what I knew and what I felt. I didn't travel to India for the first time until 2000. And I found myself crying almost every day because I was so happy. And in the presence of that happiness, I realized how sad I had been, even though I didn't know that I was so sad. So I knew I had to keep going back and I did, and also left my marriage and just kept exploring the mountain range, the Himalaya, because it, it resonated deep within me. Uh, the first time I went to this temple and I realized that it was a mountain that I'd seen in my dreams as a kid, I just wept. I walked into a temple with my friend and they started ringing the bell and my body disintegrated. And I wasn't there, but I was there and everywhere and nowhere. And not on LSD or mushrooms, because I've done that too, right? But this was just hiking up a mountain and then realizing that I had a connection with a place and knowing that I had a connection with a place because it talked to me since I was a kid. I don't, I don't really know how to qualify the voices that have guided me to study and to immerse myself in different traditions only to then walk away from them. That actually gets to something that's, that I'm feeling as we're talking, you know, it's the, the kind of typical questions I may ask the what is that and define that and all, all that I, I know is hard to access and I knew it would be in our conversation because you know we're, we're talking about something that is not as definable and so it, it is difficult to communicate and I think it tends to be done more poetically and more using metaphor and so I, I I'm really interested to see how, how, I guess how I manage that, you know, I, I cause, cause right. I, I've been in this intellectual place. I mean, the first thing I do is I go read and, you know, digest. And that's this tradition, this academic tradition that I've been a part of for many years. You know, we have to cite things and define things. And this is kind of how you start your, your paper or your, even your conversation. You know, I want to start out with, okay, let's, get into all the concepts. Let's define everything. Where do they show up? Tell me some stories. Can you tell how tight your pelvic floor just got? Yeah. Yeah. But in there's, right? but it, yeah, my, my, and your throat. Yeah. Because that's what happens. We, we, we get on this track and it's, there's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't allow for the body to be a part of it. It starts to tighten us up because we have to know. We've got to figure it out. And there's nothing wrong with knowledge. I read a lot, but that's not what I do. That's not what I do with people. I try to get people out of the thinking mind. I'm a perfect candidate for you. I know. <laughs> I mean, that's this whole project is, you know, the spiritual aspect of this project I'm doing is about discovery and conversation and knowledge and insight and 
you know, the, but one of the best things I've been doing lately is listening to all of Beethoven's symphonies and doing 10 sun salutations every morning. It's a new practice. It's been amazing. And I urge, I urge, similarly, I urge people into those spaces too, you know, but, but I, I do think I'm so sympathetic to where we are because, I mean, I don't know, I want to go into this warning of like, oh, you know, we're so detached and all those things, but I, I, I don't know where I'm going other than I, 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 there's obviously something to do with culture that continues to assert this idea that work, conquest, you know, dominance, you know, I think Genesis, the story of Genesis really laid it all out, you know, to be dominant, to have dominion over nature, essentially. And, you know, here, here we are in nature, in our body and the various storms and dry spells and that, that's one thing I've liked very much when Leela Scott, my wife, and I talk about this, you know, from the Eastern tradition, they, they tend to use so many more metaphors from nature about dry and wet. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's all I got right now, but the nature outside is reflected in the nature inside. So if you just look at our planet, it should be a clear indication of where we are. That's a morbid thought. We're crying. We're disconnected. We're removed from nature and we don't know how to get back because we've been indoctrinated in thinking. Uh, I think, therefore I am. Yes, thank yeah. you. And it's, it, it is, interesting. I mean, we're, we're covered up in that. I, I certainly am. I mean, but look, it, it's, it's done a lot in my life. You know? 100%. And I don't, um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, it's done a whole lot. Yeah. So, so let me just throw this out there. What I do isn't to dismiss the mind. The mind is absolutely necessary and essential to being embodied. A healthy mind is essential to being healthy physically, right? But we spend so much of our time in our mind. What's the harm in an hour a day focusing on connecting with our vehicle? You know, it's, it's not so much a disparaging of the mind. The mind is fantastic. I love intellect. It's one of the things that turns me on in life. I love to learn but we overuse the mind and we misuse our bodies so often. And we're afraid to actually allow the body to have its own voice because somehow it's part of the dominion, mm -hmm. right? Dance monkey. Well, what if it doesn't want to dance? What if it wants to be held? What if it never actually got properly held? right? So many people that I work with never got proper attunement, right? They didn't have good attachment and they've sought out horrible relationship after relationship after relationship because they're still trying to recreate the very thing that didn't feed them to begin with. 
and they don't know that they can find that inside by slowing down and feeling where those pains actually got stored in their body. The body remembers. It remembers everything. And it doesn't require conscious thought to come up. Once it starts to come up, we have to facilitate it, right? The mind has to be on board. It has to allow space for it. Because if it steps all over it, if it shoulds all over it, then the process stops. I don't know if I'm making sense. I think you are. I, um, I'm just, I don't know, relating, relating maybe a, a lot with what you're saying. And I keep thinking about a time when I, I had my back spasm and I was in my office at home and I just hit the floor. I couldn't move. And I was in, I was kneeling on the floor in child's pose because I could not be in any other position. And in that moment, I had this thought that um, this is like the thunderbolt of Zeus. And if I had a different worldview, it would set me up for a different understanding of what this was. You know, rather than immediately going to whatever I went to, you know, I'm, it's a back spasm and I need to do this or, you know, whatever, whatever we tend to do, my, my associations that kind of help me understand a way through or out. But in that moment, it helped me understand this quote from Jung that I've liked very much about, he said, the gods have descended from Olympus and landed in the solar plexus. And it's taken me a long time to even try to begin to understand that. And I think what he's getting at is early on, you know, without a complete medical, medicalized understanding of, of the world, kind of a material understanding of the world, we have a more poetic worldview. And so I relate with pains and prods and relationships and possibilities in the cosmos in a very different way. So, so what one might do with a back spasm like that is to honor the gods in a different way. I mean, to change one's life in that religious context, you know, all of a sudden Zeus is fucking with me. And if that's happening, I need to change the way I'm living. And so maybe I need to honor my religious self in a different way, to be different with my relationships, to kind of the way they would say it is they build a hecatomb or some kind of ritual that is, you know, you're not honoring Zeus in the way that you need to be. And so what all those things mean, I then change my life to, um, to accommodate that, my daily living. But today with a back problem, it's to the doctor, then to the surgery, then to the so on and so forth. It's a, it's an utterly different worldview. It is a different worldview. And, and you know, what I would say with a back spasm, I would imagine that it was a lower back spasm in the way that you described it and not a mid or upper back spasm. So one of the ways that I teach energy to students or to clients when I'm massaging them or teaching them yoga is that the neck mirrors the sacrum, the shoulders mirror the hips and the jaw mirrors the pelvic floor. And we get into 
the chakras, right? So first and second chakra being relating to ourselves and to others. So if our lower back isn't stable, right, then what our spine is resting on, our hips, our pelvis, our feet, are not grounded in ourself. And we're pursuing something that's not necessarily aligned with who we are. And I don't know that it's that we need to shift what we're doing in our lives. I mean, I always try to be careful with the because people get, always jump into, I should do something. Right. I should fix this. I should change this. I need to, I need to enforce change. I need to create possibility and potential in my life. And then they've forgotten that they were vulnerable. Being brought to your knees by Zeus or whatever is a vulnerable state. But we don't want to be vulnerable. So we go into action mode. And we dictate what needs to happen next. So we go from a moment of huge potential for unearthing something into creating a shroud or a building around it, which protects it, but it also protects it from ourself. So we don't get to go deeper into the why because we're off to get the Advil or the Aleve or whatever people are taking to numb the pain so that we can keep doing this or keep doing that. Or we're going to go to the doctor and we're going to have them surgically remove that, that horrible disc, you know, between our vertebrae or whatever. There's, there's vulnerability in us. And when things like that happen, I think it's the body trying to say, Hey, pay attention. I'm trying to tell you something, but there's no room for that in our society. The body's like a car, but, but it doesn't get the same kind of care that our cars get. But, and that, that brings up the, I know how I, that moment, you know, what do I do about it? I'm just curious about you saying more about when people do come to you and it's that moment of discomfort and vulnerability and the the implication is that I should not feel this pain is not okay and so t t talk me through what happens there so so let's say you you hobbled in right let's say it's you in that moment that you got brought to your knees mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and you're thinking oh the gods of Olympus have descended and landed in my solar plexus or whatever you quoted from Jung, That's right? It, yeah. um, you're afraid. You're not sure if you're going to be able to walk upright. You're worrying about your ability to work, provide for your family, make an income, right? Like mm -hmm. all of these things. And am I going to be able to run? Am I going to be able to pick my kid up? Am I going to be able to sit on the toilet and, and wipe my own bottom, mm -hmm. right? There's all these things that start going through, which do what? They make us more afraid. They grip the pelvic floor even more. We pull up in our feet, which is going to make our lower back even tighter, right? Our diaphragm, this huge dome, is connected to our lumbar spine, as well as our pericardium, which is the sac that our heart rests in. And we're gripping like crazy, trying to control not feeling pain, which is making us more in pain. So... I would examine you. I would look at what your posture looks like. I would look at where the energy is flowing because the pain that you're feeling in that moment is a symptom, right? It's not, it's not the reason, right? Mm -hmm. It's the symptom. So I'm going to look at 
what contributed to you being hobbled? What are you not feeling? What are you not thinking? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? How deep is your breath going? Are you normally a surface breather? Do you normally deep breathe? Okay, if it looks like your physiology supports a normally erect body, I could ask you, when did you start feeling slight discomfort? Okay, what was going on in your life? What happened? What was it that you couldn't digest? What got stuck in your guts? Digestion, assimilation, absorption. What we think affects how we feel, not just emotionally, but physiologically, physically. So we would get into that. And so whether I was doing yoga or massage, I would prop the body in a way that allowed energy to flow as well as possible. And then get into the holding patterns, whether it's the area that you were feeling pain or surrounding areas. Sometimes there's so much inflammation, I have to draw it to the most distal point, the furthest away that I can get it in order to get it out of that cramped, freaked out, chronic or acute mode, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes people are coming in from a chronic disease. But if you're in there for an acute back spasm, that this is what I love. It just happened all of a sudden. Nothing happens all of a sudden. We're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. We get little signs all along the way that we're not paying attention. And we think we can get away with it. One of my mentors, I love him dearly, Robert Svoboda, used to say, there ain't no such thing as a free barbecue in the state of Texas. Right? So we don't, we don't get away with it. So if you're back spasmed, you were not grounding into your physical self. You were not taking care of your vehicle. Maybe you were spending way too much time hunched over a desk with books. <laughs> not taking time to get up and go walk and breathe, worrying about whether or not you were gonna get your dissertation finished. I don't know when it happened. Yeah. But I'm just kind of guessing, right? But that's heady. It's right. all heady stuff. And there's nothing wrong with the mind. I love mind. I just want there to be a healthier relationship between the body and the mind. And the body will take us down. It happens all the time. And one of the things that I love about Gabor Mate's work was the book, When the Body Says No. You know, I remember running into Brian McKenna in January, um, almost two years ago at the farmer's market and him talking to me about Stephen Porges and polyvagal theory. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, Debbie, it's what you've been doing, even though you didn't know what you were doing, but you knew what you were doing because I don't really pay attention to the science of it. Mm -hmm. I just know that people need to feel safe. If people are going to be healthy and whole and integrated, they have to feel safe. Will you talk about that for folks? The so Stephen Porges, um, brilliant, brilliant guy, uh, talks about the vagus nerve. And it's it's the longest spinal nerve. Um, 
it's a top-down, bottom-up nerve. And the evolution from reptiles to mammals, right? And then the human species and how we have the ability to, to fight, flight, freeze, and how when we feel safe, we, we have prosody of voice, we can hear. So he, he talks about it with, with children with autism. I can't cite all of it, but when the spine is long and somebody feels safe, it's obvious, right? They're receptive. They're engaged. They're able to maintain eye contact. They have prosody. They have a good voice, right? It's not cracked. It's not gripping. Mm. You can tell when someone is safe. And when they're not, there is some compression in the spine affecting the nervous system. And it it shows up in all sorts of different ways. So trying to get someone's spine as long as it can be, encouraging people to do what I ask them to do to the best of their ability with the least amount of gripping as possible, encourages someone to feel safe, to do what they can do, not more, not less, to pay attention to how they feel Right? Some people, when they go into a back spasm, right, they just try to wrench their body straight upright. I've mm. done it. I was surfing in Sri Lanka and I ripped my knee. I didn't know I'd ripped my knee. Ground into a reef, trying to keep my body up at the top of the water. A wave broke on the outside of my leg. What did I do? After the most excruciating pain, I tried to get up and take a wave in after being pummeled with my board and I finally got in and I'm limping and I'm on the third floor and I'm thinking, your knee's not ripped. You're fine. See if you can do it. So what did I do? I did deep squats in the shower. What? Right? So young, so full of potential, <laughs> so full of will, right? We try to make it go away. So I, I only teach what I know. I've done the very same thing with myself over and over and over again because it's part of human nature. But I do it less and less and less as I grow and I learn and I have more compassion for the thing that is carrying around the mind and all of this subtle energy. I don't know if I answered your question. I don't even know what the question was. I don't know. <laughs> I, I love where you went, though. <laughs> Too I, much. Well, I'm excited about your surfing. I, I'm not very good at it, but I'm quite fond of it. <laughs> I have a board that's too short for me. Uh, I, I feel... I don't know if this is taking us too far afield right now, but I'm, you mentioned your teachers earlier. Mm -hmm. I, be, be, I don't know if this is, let me see if I can make this make sense. We're in such a standardized and universalized model for education, right? The way we try to get in as much as possible to as many as possible, you know, just look at our school systems, right? I mean, it's, the way we organize our um, 
those rites of passage around education and how we categorize it and structure that process shows a lot about how we view ourselves. And what's so interesting about what you're talking about is it's very much the apprenticeship model, which I'm, uh, of which I'm very fond, you know, where you, where you are in a relationship with somebody that is kind of in the attachment world. When I work in childhood trauma, we talk, I talk to parents about kind of these four stages, which is I do for you. I do with you and show you, you do, and I support you, you do. So this, this kind of very intimate and close educational lens, which is individualized, you're, you're able to get nuances within the relationship and with the individual that otherwise we don't see. I mean, I, I, I was such a horribly misunderstood kid when it came to classes. You know, I never, I never got it. You know, I didn't know the, the way to do all those things. And so my, my academic fervor and interest came back very late, mm-hmm. came, came to me very late in my life. Right. And it, it, it was when I was in a more c- close community that I could come to know myself and know my potential and possibility. And, you felt and, safe. Yeah, I did. I did. I, I did not. And this is weird. I mean, I, I was social and, you know, vibrant and all those stuff, all those things as a kid. But, you know, really, I was scared about putting my hand up and getting things wrong and how much I didn't understand. And so, you know, whether it was acting out or acting like I knew the answer, you know, and all the while getting in trouble from teachers who who never once really understood that I just didn't understand. Right. And like... Gabor would say that you were lacking attention. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get that. I, he 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 draws from all those attachment uh, straight wells, you know. And well, you know, when a child acts out or doesn't toe the line, it's they're they're not getting something, right? They're they're either not getting it, like you're talking about. I don't understand. I I don't want to raise my hand and say I don't know. Right. But something's they're not getting something. Yeah. Right. So academically teaching, I mean, I've been teaching for so long, right? I've, I've been teaching people, but not from an academic perspective. Right. My teachers that you were just mentioning, right? What I got from my teachers was to, to go to the teacher within the guru, Mm -hmm. right? The remover of darkness, that which illuminates right inside me. My one of my first uh, teachers I met through my my ex husband, and it's the first person I have ever received a transmission from. And all of a sudden, I'm watching him teach me, and I'm somewhere up, up above, going, "Wow, this is quite weird." That's me, I think. That's him. Yeah, I just met him. The weirdest thing. Some people say, well, that's bullshit. That's crazy. It doesn't matter. I learned a lot. I don't actually care if people (laughs) think that I'm nuts. Maybe I am, but it works for me. And I would say it works for a lot of other people too. Mm -hmm. But in that relationship, one time he came to stay with me and it was after um, 
I'd split, split up with my ex and, you know, I met him through him. So that was awesome. Um, he said to me, sometimes you are the great tree and I sit beneath your shade. And sometimes I am the great tree and you sit beneath my shade. The idea was that it was a reciprocal relationship and that it transcended time and space. And it wasn't about the here and now, because clearly I had never taught him. Right. Okay. He had taught me, but most of what he taught me, he didn't verbally teach me. I just got energetically. So all of a sudden my body was moving into positions and postures that they'd never been in with ease. And it was a phenomenal experience. Phenomenal. Right. And that was a very short lived relationship. I have another teacher whom I wouldn't even get close to, let alone have him stay at my house because he's a very traditional South Indian man. So you don't, you, you maintain the, the boundaries, right? He's South Indian Brahmin. So, and he's who I learned a lot of text from classical text, brilliant, brilliant Sanskrit. I mean, amazing. But he absolutely, I don't want to say toe the line, but he did not vary at all from what his teacher taught him. And that's just not who I am, right? So that was a different type of relationship. Then I had another teacher, Robert Svoboda, right, from Sri Ramaswamy, who studied with Krishnamacharya for over 30 years, right? So Robert Svoboda had this mentor, the Agori Vimalananda, and he's talking about the left-handed tantric path, which is so far removed from anything that Srivatsa Ramaswamy would even think to teach me, right? And he and I had a more um, close relationship, but not close. And I remember crying once when I was really young and I had started working with him because I just wanted a guru. And he said, do you know what you're asking for? Do you know what's required to have a guru? Are you really willing to give up all of your own thought and give everything over to the guru to be told what to do and how to do and when to do, essentially. And I thought, absolutely not. Because I was telling him, you know, I, I just want a teacher. I just want someone to guide me, which was obviously a lament from my childhood, right? I just want someone true to guide me and tell me what to do. And as I told him in that moment, I said, you know, I hear the wind, the trees, the water, fire, it all speaks to me. It all guides me. And he said, why are you crying then? I had the guru all along. I've always had, everybody has this teacher inside them. We just have to listen. We have to learn how to be humble enough to slow down long enough to be inquisitive enough, thoughtful enough to hear the guide within us. So how does that process work for, I mean, tap into your healer self, you know, for a second. And, and when you sit with people, I'm, I'm, I'd imagine there's a, there's an arc or a trend. You know, take me through a typical experience, you know, when somebody's kind of not listening to those parts of themselves, they come in with a pain, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. So I check in whether I'm teaching a group class or an individual lesson or someone's coming in for a massage or somebody wants energy work. 
I always check in. How are you? I'm fine. What's going on, right? <laughs> yeah. And they'll either be distracted and not breathing very deeply, or maybe they're agitated, maybe they're frustrated, maybe they have pain, maybe they're removed and dejected. And I just watch how they respond to me, what they say, what they don't say. When their voice cracks about what they're talking about, when their breath changes, when they're describing what's going on, where the energy's flowing in their body and where it's not. And then I'll ask questions to see if what I'm picking up is accurate. And their body tells me what they need. Because the body is a living, breathing organism. And it reflects everything that's going on in the mental and emotional mind. So we're talking about the ways that people are unconscious of how those cracks and shifts and discomforts and pains are messages or a means by which the body's communicating something. Yeah. The, the attitude, I'm making these like glorious sweeping generalizations. Do here. it because I won't. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, or maybe I will. So, so, so the, you know, they, they, they you know, uh, me too. They come in and say, you know, this hurts. Um, I don't like it. Um, and you have this attitude of, yeah, but something's communicating to you. You're getting these messages. You have two issues. The first is the the pain, the symptom, and what's actually going on. The second thing you've got is. The, the, just the general inability for people to have that worldview that relates with their body in the way that we're talking about. How do you address those two two things, right? I mean, because... Well, if people's pain wasn't mitigated on some level, I would be out of work, right? So the first thing is, <laughs> right, we get to the root of what's causing the pain. And it may not be the actual root, Maybe it's part of the bulb. Maybe it's not a bulb. Maybe mm -hmm. it's a tree. I don't know. Right. But we, we start getting into it. So if it's someone that I've worked with a lot, then I know, I know where their emotional barometers are in their body. I know when it's a, oh, you know, I wasn't paying attention and I turned and I twisted my knee because I was going too fast and thinking too much or, oh, this is where I actually, you know, to use a client's term where I, where my secret stash is right? So there are certain parts of the body that are the chronic, right? That hold deep, deep, deep stuff. And those chronic areas get less, but they'll flare because the body never forgets, right? And then there are areas that can be acute, right? Right. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a paper. I just had a baby. I'm not sleeping, right? Baby's got colic. I'm not sleeping, my husband has needs, he's frustrated because I'm not meeting them, I'm not sleeping, then there's those acute things, right? And how to address those. So if someone's coming in and it's acute, then it's soothing the system, it's soothing the nervous system, it's getting into the tissue, it's elongating whatever part of the body 
has become compressed, getting the fascia to stop locking down so that the soft tissue can relax, the fascia can relax, the joints can go back into place, right? Because the joints with minor subluxations, right? The muscles get tight and mm-hmm. they pull the bones slightly out of place, not in alignment, right? So we work towards alignment, whether it's in a yoga session or a massage session. You know, sometimes I'll put my hand on someone. I'm allowed to touch people, right? You're not. Yeah. I'm allowed to touch people. I can see if somebody who's having back pain is gripping their intestines like there's no tomorrow. Right. I can put my hand on their abdomen and get them to focus on their breathing and get the diaphragm to relax, get the intestines to let go so that peristalsis kicks in and you can start to feel movement in the intestines. I can do that. Right? I can see if somebody actually just needs to be held for a moment to be seen. I can hug someone when they come in. And they can feel really frenetic for you know a minute and then they can just soften and start to yield and maybe even tear up because something's going on and they feel threatened or confused. And their neck hurts or they were gripping their jaw because something's going on in their life that nobody knows about. Maybe they're in a relationship that's not very healthy and they don't know how to get out and it causes deep anxiety. And for that reason, their trapezius is contracted because they can't get their shoulders out of their ears because they can't stop thinking long enough to take a deep breath. So I can massage the tissue. I can create more range of motion in the shoulders and in the neck. I can massage the jaw. I can put props under the abdomen to help the abdomen to start to relax while I work on their lumbar spine, right? The the whole concept of a tight ass. I can maybe get into their glutes. I can position in the way, position the leg in a way that engages a muscle that, that has a hard time contracting and releases a muscle that's overly contracted all the time. And then I can talk to them about what's going on, what they're feeling, what, what, when they first started noticing the pain, what was going on in their lives. And then I can start seeing how their body's reacting and go to those parts of their body and move them or touch them or massage them. When I say touch, I mean in a very appropriate way, obviously. Mm-hmm. But there's so many different ways to address someone's physical pain, but never, ever, do I work with someone with the mentality of go away? And that's why what I do works because I'm not attached. I'm just interested and curious and compassionate and I want to help, but I don't know what needs to go away in a person. Most people don't know what needs to go away in them either. They just know what they don't like and they don't want it. Sometimes the thing that they're trying to push away is the very thing that's going to set them free. Yeah, I mean, that's that tends to show up a lot. Definitely in your work, right? Yeah, I mean, that that to me makes a lot of sense. You know, the, what is presented, it's paradoxical. You know, that we, we, we think we have the cure, but it's part of the flight. Yeah. So understanding the body helps, right? 
being able to see asymmetries. We all have them, but some of them are more pronounced than others. Being able to go through a movement sequence or position someone in such a way and then have them do a repetitive movement to work the kinks out and then have them hold the posture until the energy starts to flow and they start trembling because there's obstructions in their channels. I'm just taking a note of how many pains I have in my body right now. A lot of people live in chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is a direct relationship to disembodiment. Whenever I have a pain in my body, it's because I'm not listening to something or something's coming up that I'm having to work through that I just need to pay more attention to as it goes along the way. But I don't, I don't take Aleve or Advil or I just try to move and breathe and, and bear witness of what's unfolding. I know sequences, right, that I can do and I never teach set sequences. I'm constantly teaching things differently because I don't want people to be attached. Mm -hmm. There's so many ways to do something. So if one lives in pain, they just chalk it up to, oh, you know, it's life, right? I'm, I'm that age or I'm this age. But is it? Or is it because we have a demanding way of being with our physical body? You know, when I, I, I'll talk to someone, I'm like, well, you know, your body's been lynched. Of course it's pissed. Of course it's screaming. Right? You just dragged it behind a pickup truck down a dirt gravel road. Why would it want to cooperate? It shouldn't. I put myself in those, in everybody, and, and of course my own shoes. We, we just don't exactly support the kind of time. We don't, we don't. Yeah. Again, I, I really, I just go back to what Ken Robinson was saying that, you know, in order to make sense of the arts in school, we have to validate it by saying that it helps you in mathematics. You know, there's such a materialistic approach, you know, that it's so output driven it's so quantitative. There's a, there's a Taoist meditation that I, I stumbled upon years ago, and it was kind of stunning to me, given my worldview and upbringing, when I started studying Eastern traditions, Buddhism in particular. It was a, it was a meditation where you would smile and relate to your organs. You would approach your organs and show gratitude and kind of spend time with them and say how excited and proud you are of the work they're doing. And I mean, that might sound like mumbo jumbo bullshit to a lot of people. Inevitably it does. Yeah. Right. The question then becomes, what does that do for me? I mean, that's that, that point, like, what does it do for me? Where's the payoff here? Give me the payola. Right. Right. And I think what you're saying is that 
or at least the way I'm I'm receiving what you're saying is is that if if you're you better pay attention to how you're relating to this part of your existence because it's consistently speaking to you and if you <laughs> if you don't pay attention to it it's going to get louder I mean, yes, I think that's on some level what I'm saying, but I think more what I'm saying is if you have a relationship with your body that is, I need this from you, I need something from you, it's not a healthy relationship. And I'm not talking about reciprocal needs, but I'm going to, let's say someone goes, okay, I need to pay attention to my body, right? Well, I'm going to pay attention to my body because I need it to perform. I'm going to pay attention to my body because it's going to have to carry me throughout the rest of my life. That's a different type of relationship than I'm going to pay attention to my body because I'm grateful. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pay attention to my body because it deserves the same amount of attention as the mind does. So it's not so much... You better, you better, you know, pay attention or else, because that's punitive. Right. And I heard that when I said pun it. Yeah. Punitive doesn't really work with. I mean, it doesn't really work with the body, and I know it doesn't work with the mind, because again, counter will mm -hmm. will kick in. All right. So if somebody thinks, oh, I have to pay attention to my body, I should pay attention to my body. They're not going to, or if they do, it's going to be negative because it's imposed. I try to get people to court the body, to have a relationship, to develop a relationship because there's a lot that the body will teach us that we do not know and or remember. So curiosity, intention, compassion. So we're closing up soon. Okay. I want to leave time for us to tend to what may not have been tended to. What are threads that are hanging out for you? I have no idea. I can spiral out. So I don't even know if I answered anything that you asked me. <laughs> I, God, I don't know if you guys out there listening are feeling what I'm feeling right now, but I'm, I don't know. I feel inspired and aware of kind of what I've been subtly aware of. It's just a different, it's a, you know, we've all got our callings and our various lanes and obviously with a doctorate in psychology and a curiosity about religious studies and you know, writing books and 
I'm, I'm, I'm a very spirited person. And I can tell that, that that's something that I've, I'm, I feel called to relate in a new way. So I, I'm, I'm pretty blank now, but what I do feel is grateful for the awareness that you're bringing to my mind and body. And uh, I, feel, I feel eager to, to try to see how this conversation affects and influences my, uh, my life. I appreciate your curiosity. Yeah. How do you want to close it out? Don't forget to breathe. Breathe into the space. Breathe into your inspiration. Whether that's you or someone that's listening or myself, like prana rides on the vehicle of the breath and wherever the mind goes, prana follows. So if we're thinking out, 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 then that's where the prana is going. And if we're thinking internal in a soothing sort of way, and we're breathing, then that's where the prana is going to go. And the prana is so much stronger than the mind. So if we're breathing and we're feeling, we don't have to think about it so much. It will unfold. That's the good news. Oh, dream.